Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. And once again, for the second time in very recent times, we're happy to announce a new series for the podcast. This group of episodes is called In Their Own Words, and it's designed to chronicle the stories of scientists who've made great contributions to their fields, particularly within the biological sciences. The motivation behind the series is simple. It's that oral histories allow listeners and readers to learn from and share the experiences of luminaries in ways that often aren't possible in other mediums. You'll find the results of our conversations both here in Bioscience Talks and in the pages of Bioscience. There'll be a link in the show notes for those who'd like to read along. And for our inaugural episode, we're happy to present this interview with Dr. Rita Caldwell, a distinguished environmental microbiologist and scientific administrator who previously served as president of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. Let's go to the interview. Dr. Caldwell, thank you very much for joining me today and for agreeing to answer some of our questions. Certainly. Delighted. All right, then I guess with no further ado, we should launch straight into the questions and take it from there. Uh, the first one is, when did you first know that you wanted to pursue a career in the life sciences? I started out to be a scientist. That wasn't a question. Mainly, I'm not sure that I knew what a scientist was until I entered college or maybe in late high school. But I started out with a notion that I would be a chemist. That seemed the, to be the right thing. However, my high school chemistry teacher uh, refused to provide a letter of recommendation because he said... Um, Girls um, couldn't be chemists. That was very interesting. I was pretty stubborn. I continue to be stubborn. And when I entered Purdue University, I enrolled as a chemistry major, but I did not find it very interesting. It was really the life science courses that I took, particularly in my junior year when it occurred to me that a calling might be medical school. So I took courses in um, general biology, embryology, and then uh, bacteriology. Bacteriology really was exciting to me, and that's what I spent my career studying, really is microbiology. Bacteriology, in those days, the um, microbial world was divided into bacteria, fungus, viruses, and parasites. Parasites generally belong to the zoologists, and the virologists were quite separate. So I started out with the notion of being a bacteriologist and soon evolved into being very excited about microorganisms in general. That's fascinating, and I'm surprised by the appalling blunder that your chemistry teacher made. Um, but what captured your attention about bacteriology in particular? It was looking at the, the bacteria under the microscope. They, they were just fascinating creatures. Their morphology, their capacity for motility. Some of them have flagella, little tails. And they whip around like darting molecules, practically. And it just seemed fascinating. There was this whole world that unless it was magnified a thousand times or 10,000 times, you didn't even know existed. I think that's what fascinated me. And what would you say was the biggest surprise of your career? I think the biggest surprise was when I became director of the National Science Foundation. That was not something that I had had um, aspired to or even thought 
would be part of my career trajectory. But it was a wonderful experience, probably the best part of my entire career. And what's that moment like? You know, how does one find out that one is about to become the director of the National Science Foundation? Is it is it a phone call? Well, indeed, it is a phone call. I walked into my office one morning. My secretary said the vice president's on the phone. And I said, the vice president of what? And she said, the United States. <laughs> so I went into my office, took the phone call. It was the sec- assistant to uh, Vice President Gore. And she said, Dr. Caldwell, if this is an inopportune time, we can call back. And I said, no, no, this is fine. And that was what then she said that uh, Vice President Gore wanted to speak with me and that when he did come on the phone, he um, said, well, he said, um, I understand that you might be willing to become director of the National Science Foundation. And I said, well, that would be extraordinary. He said, well, Dr. Lane will be stepping down as director and moving over to become science advisor to President Clinton. And you've been nominated. Will you serve? And I said, I absolutely would be delighted to serve, sir. So that's how I began. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing it with us. It's not one that most of us will get to experience in our lives. Um, Moving along, what's the biggest difference between the way that science is conducted now and the way that it was conducted when you first began your career? When I first entered science, the research was pretty much uh, individually directed. It was it was sort of a solo, um, you know, the kind of aha, eureka, I have discovered this or that. And now science is very much a teamwork approach. And also, initially, uh, as I like to say, you you would get a Nobel Prize for studying a single enzyme on one leg of a centipede. Now it's teamwork and um, it generally is three people, the maximum, who share a Nobel Prize. And then those three are really standing on the Shoulders of giants, to to purloin a phrase by another famous scientist, by a famous scientist, um, and so, for example, the um, Large Hadron Collider, the black hole, uh, these major discoveries in medicine tend to be team operations. There are still some loners who who become Nobel laureates, but generally speaking. Today, science is interdisciplinary and very often teamwork. Do you prefer that, or, or, or did you like the era of the, the lone scientist making major discoveries? Well, I sort of bridge both worlds, so I kind of like both worlds. I started out working in uh, an obtuse, um, very non-mainstream field of systematics, evolutionary microbiology, taxonomy. And back in the 60s, this was really uh, the hinterland of science. But it fascinated me. And as a woman, it was one of the few areas open because 40 or 50 years ago, science was not considered a place for a woman to be. So I, I made a number of discoveries, but the biggest discovery of all 
or that I find myself now at the forefront and the cutting edge of science because there's nothing more exciting today than the evolution of microorganisms, the genomics of microorganisms, the metagenomics and systematics of microorganisms as evolutionary paths to follow. And there I am, catapulted from an obscure area of research into the hottest thing going. Kind of nice. Yeah, so in a sense, the field came to you. <laughs> I think, well, yes, I guess you could say that. I was sitting there doing my work, and suddenly uh, it's right at the front edge. Let's talk about professional societies a little bit. And I think the question would be here, you know, how have professional societies played a role in your career? Um, and are, are there any single large events that might stick out? Professional societies have been absolutely critical in my career. I started out doing a lot of work in societies like the Washington Academy of Science, the uh, Sigma Xi National Honorary, the kinds of um, organizations that, that nurture very young scientists who are starting. And then I became, um, it seemed that I always was elected president. I, I became president of the American Society for Microbiology. And that turned out to be a major turning point because I was originally scheduled to um, be one of two candidates for the position, but a second, and, and my opponent was a male microbiologist, and another scientist, male, decided that he should be president, and he had himself written in. And um, I was told, um, when I wasn't supposed to be told, that I actually beat them both handily. So it was kind of interesting because this was 1985, 86, sort of the beginning of awareness of, of women as leaders. So that turned out to be rather important. Another reason was that the first woman elected was elected in 1928, Alice Evans. She was elected president for her work on brucella and brucellosis, which she believed was transmitted by unpasteurized milk. She worked at the time not at university. It was very hard for women to be university faculty. She was working with the agricultural department, and her boss absolutely did not believe that milk could be the transmission of brucellosis. In any case, she proved to be correct, and when she was elected president and to be sworn in or at least feted at the annual meeting, she couldn't go because she was in the hospital with brucellosis. Oh, my goodness. Yes, the next president was um, um, in, during the Second War, and that was like 20 years later. And um, the, president, she, the president was a woman who discovered the, the serology of um, um, strepto, uh, streptococcus strep throat causing organisms. Um, she was elected because all the men were at war. Then the next woman, almost another, almost another 20 years, 
with Helen Whiteley from the University of Washington. And then I was elected, uh, not quite 20, but almost 20 years later. And when I found out how the selection of nominees was made, namely that the past president served as the chair of the nominating committee and that um, the nominations would be put forward as selected in June, but not published until August in the uh, news booklet of the American Society for Microbiology. And if you wanted to write in a candidate, you had to write in by late June. Well, if you didn't know who the candidates were until August, you couldn't write anybody in. So I notified the Women's Committee, which was just getting started and feeling feisty, and said, look, if you want another woman president before another 20 years, you better get a write-in going, which they did. And <laughs> for the next several years, women were elected president. So that was kind of interesting. Were there any other early challenges, um, you know, in, in being one of the, the early um, female heads of a you know, professional society? Oh, yes. When I was a senior, I had been selected um, by several medical schools, and I was on my way to medical school. I'd been accepted at Yale and Western Reserve and, and in Boston. Um, I met my husband literally on our first date in March uh, of my senior year, and um, we decided we would get married. And we have been married until, for 62 years until Jack passed away last year, very happily. But when I went to the department chair and said, look, my husband has just come back from serving in the military. He's uh, put in a year as a graduate student. I really don't want to stay at the same institution. I mean, I love Purdue, but I don't want to do my bachelor's, master's, and PhD at the same institution, I'm told that it's a good idea to move on. Can I have a fellowship? Because I knew there were some fellowships available. And the chairman said, oh, we don't waste fellowships on women. Now, I don't think any chairman would say that today. He might say, well, there aren't any left to be awarded. But I don't think he would say, we don't waste them on women. No, I would imagine not. But that's, that's terrible that he would have said that. Well, he actually meant it. That was even worse. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, on a slightly happier note, uh, what would you say is your best day on the job so far? I've been thinking that's the hardest question of all, because I've had so many good days. Um, I think maybe the day that I was able to confirm my discovery of um, microorganisms, bacteria having the capacity to go into a dormant stage, the non-spore-forming bacteria. And this was um, Vibrio cholerae, whom the organism that I had um, shown to be naturally occurring in the environment. It's an environmental bacterium, not traditionally you know, transferred person to person as most human pathogens are, but it, it resides in the environment. And we had noticed that it would go into a stage if put in the refrigerator where you could see the organism still moving around, but you couldn't get it to grow. And we discovered by using special stains and radioisotopes and so forth that they're very much alive. 
and this has become a major um, new understanding of um, the gram-negative. Well, many organisms that don't form a spore coat um, are capable of doing, and um, this becomes a real problem in infections when you are not able to culture what you can hypothesize or surmise to be the pathogenic agent. You, you, you can't necessarily see it because it rounds up, becomes very tiny and hard to stain. But it's there and it's alive. So that was fascinating. You know, did that discovery come as, you know, one of the eureka moments, uh, you know, kind of looking down a, a microscope and, and becoming instantly aware of something? Or was that, was that a slower build? It was a slower build, but the eureka, eureka moment came when I was called in by the Louisiana State Department where they had an outbreak of cholera. And a woman technician had been following my work and had convinced her boss that I should be invited in to look at this situation. It turned out that uh, some men had gone crab crabbing in uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, in a bayou, and they steamed the crabs, ate some, and drank beer that Saturday afternoon, and then put the crabs back into the same bushel basket that the raw crabs, you know, the ones not cooked, had been in. Tossed the basket in the trunk of their car, went, drove off to New Orleans, and then ate the rest of them that night and came down with cholera the next day. When we went to the bayou and took water samples and used a very special stain that utilized an antibody linked to a molecule that fluoresced under the UV light on the microscope, we could see these Vibrio bacteria. And so we did kind of a tribal dance around the microscope because it confirmed our hypothesis. That must have been a very exciting moment. It was. It was a fun moment as well. Yeah, it must have been. Um, I'm hoping we could talk about what I hope is also another fun moment. Um, do you have a favorite memory from your time working with AIBS? Well, Rob is going to have to corroborate this. Um, I believe that for one of the meetings of AIBS when I was president, I arranged for Ira Flatto, the Science Friday guy, to do his show. And that was absolutely terrific. He's, he's a fascinating person. He communicates science really, really well to the public, and he's a popular um, MC on uh, for science on PBS. So that that was a highlight. That was that was great fun. Did he come down to the meeting, or were you summoned to the uh, the NPR studios? I believe he. I believe it was at the uh, meeting place hotel where we were having the annual meeting. Hope I've got this right because I do remember a meeting in Arafleto, and I'm pretty sure it was AIBS. That sounds like a lot of fun, and I'll, I'll, I will get Rob to corroborate. The single funniest thing that's happened in your career. Does anything spring to mind? No, that was that's another one of the tough questions. Um, I've, I've I've had a lot of fun, but nothing jumps out as as um, as dramatically humorous. I, I've, I've had a, uh, I'll be graduating my 64th PhD, and they've all been wonderful, and some have had huge, wonderful senses of humor, 
with various practical jokes, but um, none really stands out. It's been very happy. In other words, if you ask the lowest time in my career, well, that's maybe when I was fighting to prove my hypothesis of viable but non-culturable, and also the fact that Vibrio cholerae is an environmental bacterium. Um, but the science won out. There are now more than a thousand publications on VBNC, viable but not culturable bacteria. And I think it's pretty well accepted that Vibrio cholerae is a naturally occurring environmental bacterium. And then that that answer may feed into the next question. But what event from your career do you think will be best remembered long into the future? I think the work I'm doing now, which builds on the science that I've done throughout my career, I became, because I, as I told you, I was, as a woman, I was marginalized. At the University of Washington, where my husband was accepted in the chemistry department at University of Washington, and I had applied to the medical school. I was accepted, but then I got another letter saying that I had to be a legal resident of Washington State, Idaho, Oregon, or British Columbia, and therefore could not be accepted in the medical school because they they wanted to keep their graduates in the Northwest to practice medicine, which was logical. I mean, I would have gladly stayed in the Northwest. But uh, in any case, um, um, I became a marine microbiologist at a time when there were probably fewer than 10 in the entire world. Um, And as a result, one of the most common bacteria that are easily grown from seawater and from marine animals, which I was studying, crabs, shellfish, and so forth, are vibrios. These are bacteria um, of which one species is cholera, vibrio cholerae. And as a result, um, I um, became an expert in, uh, in cholera and developed from all the work done as a postdoc in Canada and first settling at the Georgetown University Biology Laboratories and then moved to the University of Maryland when my lab became very large and very big, many students, um, developed the hypothesis that we could use satellite sensors to measure water temperature. Um, Obviously, they could measure chlorophyll. The Landsat was launched in the early 80s. I developed a very crude model where we use satellite sensors to determine the peak of plankton populations in the Bay of Bengal and the warming of the water. And we found this to be correlated nicely with the outbreak spring and fall in Bangladesh. We've perfected the model over the years until now working with a very brilliant a former postdoc who's now a prof- associate professor at the University of West Virginia, Dr. Jutla, J-U-T-L-A. The model allows us to predict, for example, in Yemen, the 
locale in the country where cholera will be of the highest risk and most likely to occur. We can predict four weeks ahead of time. And in working with the British Aid Agency and with the British Meteorological Organization and with NASA and the British and the um, European Space Agency, we have been able to predict where and when the outbreaks will occur. And in 2017, we had done a retrospective, that is, looking back and then fitting the model. And the aid agency from the UK asked us to work with them in 2018, which we did. We showed them where we thought cholera risk was the highest and which part of the country. And they located their physicians and supplies where we recommended. And the reduction was dramatically reduced for 2018 compared with 2017. Now, we probably can't take credit for all of the reduction, but we certainly can take credit for a good part of it. So I think the use of satellite sensors as public health tools and my contribution, my team and I, my postdocs, our contribution, I think, will be well-recognized long into the future. Yeah, that's a fascinating methodology. Where did the idea come from to use satellite sensor data? Well, when Landsat was launched, I had published at that time a series of papers showing that the cholera bacterium is is associated with, its vector, if you will, is the copepod, a small crustacean in the zooplankton. And that we could measure it, um, at least I hypothesized, we could measure when it became dominant because Landsat could measure sea surface temperature, sea surface height, and chlorophyll. So if we surveyed the Bay of Bengal for the period of time when chlorophyll sensing gave the highest uh, number, that is, peak of chlorophyll, coupled with elevated temperature, then we should be able to correlate that with the peak in the spring and again in the fall with cholera outbreaks, which occur every year, even now, though much less because we have the technology to, to, um, to treat cholera patients quickly and, and prevent as well. So, so it was really sort of um, remarkable that we could count the number of patients going into the hospital in the villages of Bangladesh down near the Bay of Bengal and measure sea surface temperature and chlorophyll from space and get a very, very close correlation. And of course, now it's much improved 20 years later. And many others are doing the same kind of studies. I I think remarkable may be an understatement there. Um, What would you say was the most frightening or intimidating thing that you've faced in your professional career? Well, as a young scientist, 
and a woman proposing some radical new ideas, I got the worst kind of pushback from some of my male colleagues who were just plain rude in public when I would present my results. And that's not a nice thing. That's very, very chilling. And it, if I hadn't been so stubborn and hard-headed that, you know, damn the torpedoes dash on ahead, which is the way I looked at it, find a way over, under, or around the impediment. Um, but that was, that was the part that even today hurts when I think about it. I can imagine so. Do you have any advice for those who might be facing um, similar, although perhaps less severe, uh, challenges now, other than cultivating stubbornness? Get a coffee cup that says, don't let the turkeys get you down, and drink from it every day. <laughs> I love that. Um, I think you've already answered this, but but you may have something to add or not. Uh, but uh, the the next question is about what you're working on right now. I'm working on two things. I've just described the satellite model for remote sensing applications for public health. The other is genomics. I've been fascinated from the very beginning of my career with the notion that DNA was the secret code to explain not only human behavior, but also microbial behavior. And so I've gone the gamut from the early days when we got all excited about the fact that we could extract the DNA and determine its base composition to some of the crude techniques for hybridization to determine relationships among strains of microorganisms. And I use that to show the environmental bacteria, vibrios, were identical to the species of bacteria isolated from human patients with cholera. Um, to the present, where I'm working in metagenomics, and that is looking at the ecology of the gut, the ecology of the human skin, the human lung, um, saliva, sputum, uh, drinking water. It's just fascinating to look at the world of microorganisms through the use of the tools of genomics. It's very exciting. Yeah, it, it is. Getting into the microbiome world that we hear so much about in the popular press now. Exactly. And I, I realize that this question may have been phrased presumptuously, uh, so I guess it might be more appropriate to ask, uh, if you were entering graduate school today, would you do anything differently? Well, the times are different. I, I would definitely not be so hesitant. I'd be bolder. But then today, I wouldn't have gotten the nasty pushback that I got 30, 40 years ago. So the times have changed. I think I would be more, um, I would reach out more widely for ideas that I want to pursue. I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do genetics. I studied genetics uh, at Purdue as an undergraduate. And then, as I told you, when I 
stayed on so my husband could finish his master's. I got a master's in genetics. And it turned out to be fortuitous because in order to get a master's degree in genetics at Purdue at that time, I had to take a course in tomato genetics, because that's what my major professor taught, fruit fly genetics, because that's another area that he covered, uh, chicken genetics, microbial genetics, um, let's say yeast genetics, fungal genetics, and uh, even bacterial genetics. So it was perfect for the 21st century training, purely by chance. So having been kicked by the horse of prejudice against women, I wrote it to victory. It, it certainly sounds like it. That's, that is incredibly fortuitous. Yes. Along similar lines, um, if you were entering graduate school today, uh, what would you study and why? Would it be any different from the things that you've studied and worked on in your career? Are there any areas that you have not had a chance yet to um, you know, dig into that you might like to? Oh, I would love to jump into the pool of n the genomics of neuroscience. Neuroscience is taking off dramatically. It's very exciting. And the genetics of um, the uh, neurological um, apparatus fascinates me. I think we're going to learn an awful lot about memory, thinking, and perhaps even what makes us human um, by by understanding the underlying code of neuroscience. And that's a fascinating answer. Um, Dr. Caldwell, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for a very nice interview. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.